0: Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. The interview you're about to hear is with Tomoko Kuriyama of Shantarev. She was born in Japan and worked in wineries in Germany before going to work to harvest in Burgundy at Domaine Simone Bees. Chisa Bees of Domaine Simone Bees is also Japanese and had been working in a bank in Tokyo where she met Patrick Bees, eventually deciding to join him for harvest and then marrying him. Chisa Bees described Patrick, who passed away in 2013, back in episode 4.41 of all drink to that. Here's what she had to say. What was it like when you first got there in 97?
1: Patrick called me stagiaire, trainee, stagiaire, because I I know nothing. Harvest was very warm. The weather was very fine. I arrived 17th September. Harvest has already started. I came to Savigny with very city girls <laughs> clothes that means the vest and the long pantalon and the, and Patrick look at me and you you have to change <laughs> the clothes. You cannot walk in the vineyard like this. So I changed in the jeans and the t-shirt But because the weather was very nice, very hot and very nice and everybody looks happy to picking a grapes, and very walking, very hot but It was the first time for me. I started to to pick the the grapes, but it's very, very slow. So Patrick, he said, who is that lady fired? (laughs) So immediately I was fired. (laughs) And uh, I took only the pictures for everybody. I did uh, like a cameraman, but it's a a nice memory now.
0: Because Patrick had a sense of humor. He was kind of a funny guy. Yes.
1: He said like that, but I'm sure that he thinks I'm very tired, maybe after the long trip.
0: I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton.
1: I'm Erin Scala.
0: And here's our show today. Tomoko Kuriyama of Shantarev and Burgundy Indiana show today. Hello, how are you?
2: It's nice to see you.
0: So you were actually born in Tokyo, but you ended up going to university in Geisenheim in Germany.
2: When I decided to do, well, make wine in Germany, yeah, I went to Geisenheim.
0: And you had worked with Paul first?
2: Yes. So I did three years of apprenticeship at Paul. So I was there from 2000 to 2003.
0: And what was he like as a person?
2: Intense. From A to Z, very intense. So very generous and very thoughtful. But at the same time, he disciplines you through and through.
0: And he made both red and white, right?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So one reason why I went to him was exactly because he made great whistling and very nice Pinot Blanc. And also, he was very known for his Pinot Noir. And since that time already, he wasn't someone he would try to extract. In his case, it would be more pump-overs than punching-downs. And he would definitely prefer a more elegant and pristine style than a powerful (laughs) into-your-face.
0: Coming out of the 90s, he hadn't gone with the big style of trying to get more tannins and more extraction. He'd gone the other way.
2: Yeah, he got in the other way.
0: And so that was appealing to you?
2: That became appealing to me, but at that time I wasn't a big Pinot connoisseur, so I should say that my palate was shaped into that direction to a wine which is maybe less extracted, but has profundity, because I was working for him.
0: And he was friends with Helmut Donhoff.
2: He was a great friend with Helmut, yeah. So that was my another Riesling hero.
0: Because he's kind of like that for Riesling. It's not a really super muscular style.
2: Absolutely. I didn't really know Helmut until I read the interview that Gerald Asher did. And Helmut, I found it very appealing. He said he is first and foremost a traditionalist. But that doesn't mean that he would follow his father's or his grandfather's teachings blindly. He really meant that he would examine new way of doing things precisely, and he will take time to examine it before he would try it. So if he would try out a new thing, it would be a gradual process. So... I read that interview, and then I knew that Paul was really close to him, so I asked Paul to arrange a meeting with him. I went there, and it was 2001. He welcomed me, and he spent a whole morning with me. Like many Germans, he's a contemplative person, and he's not exactly at the first sight extravagant at all. But more he gets a sense that you're truly interested in the material, then he opens up more and more, and he gets excited, and he will tell you anything. He will answer every single question that you ask. For example, I asked him how he does the harvest and how he manages it, because the harvest, especially Riesling harvest in Germany, is a big logistical challenge. And someone like him, for example, you know, who makes sometimes three or four or five different wines from one vineyard. That means you have to go through one vineyard, one parcel, so many times. It's also a challenge because you want to have the best maturity. Sometimes you also want to have a botrytis. You look at the weather and It's a process of patience and judging and how much amount of dry wine or the medium sweet or the sweet wines that you want to make from that parcel that year. So that kind of reactiveness and the contemplation is something that he explained me at that first meeting. And that's what attracted me a lot to wrestling making at that time.
0: And you also worked with, Peter Jacob Kuhn, right? Yes.
2: He was different from, at the time, any other wine grower that I met. Very different from Helmut Donhoff. Peter would try something new every year. And the reason why I went to Peter was, Paul told me to go there and work with him. Because Paul had drunk uh, one of the skinned contacts, skin macerated recently that Peter made at the time. And he thought that was one of the best things that he's had, and I should really contact him. And so that's someone who's deeply passionate, like every other uh, wine grower in Germany that I met, passionate about farming. He asks lots of questions, to the way he works himself. He is inspired by many different wine growers from Germany, but also from abroad. I think it was at Peter's place that I had my first bottle of Radikon at the time. Very radical at the time. So Peter was someone like that. If Paul, Paul Fjost and Helmut Donhoff are traditionalists, then Peter Kuhn is a revolutionary. He already wasn't suffering his must, which was not rare, but still you know, in minority in Germany at the time. And then he also really wanted to reduce his sulfur doses. First and foremost, he was thinking about activating and encouraging all the microorganisms that are from the vineyard and exist in the must. And so that was his thinking, I think. Before thinking about how the wine end product would express itself, for him, it was first and foremost to, the way to communicate with the microorganisms, to make a complex and animated and lively wine.
0: When you were at Geisenheim, what did you study?
2: I specialized in viticulture. So my thesis was about the tannin maturity and the difference in tannic structure of Pinot Noirs or three different terroirs. In and one of the key points in that study was the water stress, when it comes to tannins and probably also aromatic component of wines, water stress of the vines during the vegetative growth is a key influence to how the tannins develop. So I measured the water stress of the vines periodically to see how different they are from parcel to parcel or from vineyard to vineyard.
0: That's interesting because a lot of times people say, you know, the thing that's obvious about different soils is that they regulate water differently to vines. Exactly. And then a lot of times what people associate with soil type is not necessarily smells or flavors, but more textural.
2: I agreed with those principles, but nonetheless, I think soil type is still very important and decisive because why we for example make such expressively aromatic reds here in Codo is because of the calcaire limestone that gives an expressive character to to the pinot that i think is different from any other soil type that we find in the world
0: you ended up doing a harvest in 2005 in burgundy
2: yes I got to know Chisabih. I first read the book that she wrote in Japanese and I was very fascinated by the work that Simon Bees did and the, also the life in general in Burgundy. And so beginning 2005, I contacted her and I asked her if I could come for a period of debating for one week because debating is one of the important operations to regulate yield. And it goes fast, usually. In a course of one week, you would get to work in many different vineyards. I thought it was a good time to come and so I came, I stayed for a week, and then I asked her then if I could come back for the harvest. I came back with three other friends from Geisenheim,
0: you know, Chiza was on the show, and, and one of the things that I've noticed about her is that she does encourage a Japanese kind of expatriate community to come visit or do activities, whether they be chefs or people True. involved
2: with the winery. Mm-hmm.
0: So you ended up...
2: Be one of them.
0: Being one of those people. Yeah, yeah. So you did a harvest in 2005. So 2005 would have been when Patrick was still alive. Yes. What was that period like?
2: It was an exciting harvest, and, you know, the grapes were beautiful, so there was hardly any sorting needed. And just one thing I regret is that at that time I hardly spoke French. So I'm sure Patrick was saying something always very interesting, but I could hardly understand any of the things that he was saying except the things that Chisa or the Guillaume at that time or the other people could translate for me. But even from a person who couldn't speak French, and who didn't understand. You could guess that he is a very good observer, and he was working with, first of all, the experiences that he's amassed uh, since very young, and also intuition.
0: So Guillaume Bott was working specifically with white wines, but helping with the winemaking in general at Simone B's, and he would worked previously at Sao Mm-hmm. And he is now your partner in Chantarev and also in life. Yes. So you met in 2005.
2: What was great was that he spoke English. And so I could really, working side by side, ask him as many questions as possible. I still remember, because we started working at 10 before 7 in the morning. I arrive at the Kivri. And uh, I started asking questions. One morning, he was leaning against a stainless steel tank. I think he was tired. And he said, questions not before nine.
0: <laughs> I mean, that makes him sound like a, a hard guy. But actually, he's a really nice guy. Like, he's a yeah. pretty open kind of guy. He is. In my experience. Yeah. Yes. Kind of funny, almost. Yeah, though, yeah. Which is probably why he got along with Patrick, because I think Patrick was also kind of funny.
2: Yeah, they were very good pals. Many people said that, Patrick, when you asked him technical questions, you wouldn't usually get a straightforward answer, uh, because for him, those questions are not, not important. Patrick was someone who really worked directly with the grapes and with the intuition, so many things for him were not necessary to be explained logically. Whereas Guillaume, if you would ask him questions, you would always get logical answers, very concise. So, it was a good learning process.
0: I think that's more your style as well. Really thinking through the questions and the answers about winemaking technique.
2: Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why I decided to go to Geisenheim is to have scientific background. Which is important, but at the end of the day... um, I don't rate high what I've learned in Geisenheim. Of course, they're very important, but I value very much how Patrick approaches. In the end, that's how Guillaume and I approach. We don't, for example, try to adjust the way we work or try to find a new way to work by first looking for a scientific answer. Because we... Especially during the vinification, we taste every day. I taste every morning, every evening, sometimes even three times, you know, that fermenting must, And we taste and we decide. And so scientific explanations often come afterwards. It's still important for us, for Guillaume and I to, to try to explain how the things turned out that way, because then, you know, we can extrapolate for the future vintages.
0: One of the reasons it would have been advantageous to go to Burgundy is that the German harvest would have been later in the year. Exactly. And so you could do both. Yes. And then eventually you decided to move to Burgundy. Right. What did you see as the difference between a Burgundy harvest and a German harvest?
2: Maybe the biggest difference is that some parts of Germany always made red wine, but red wine tradition was not cultivated in Germany. And so most of the producers would approach red wine harvest just like they would approach their white wine harvest, that they wanted their vines to stay, stay on the vine as long as possible. So for them, if they could reach 30 point alcohol or the 30.5 or sometimes even 14, for them, that meant a great vintage. But I'm talking about 20 years ago, right? It's changing now, definitely. So for them, the maturity of the grape was most important. Uh, that is a decisive difference from how Burgundians think. The Burgundians would think that the acidity, the balance, aromatics, and alcohol, they should all be in harmony when they harvest. So they wouldn't they wouldn't linger on. With Pinot, once they decide this is the time to harvest, they would. And they would rather harvest at the highest aromatic potential, meaning not necessarily always 13%. And that's fine for them. Because then they already have a phenolic maturity usually, and the aromatic potential is the highest. Uh, You will have a complex wine. If you let the vines stay, on the vine for longer than like maybe 13.5 or 14 sometimes, you would lose many things. So I think this thinking, first of all, was the biggest difference, striking difference.
0: And what about the cellar conditions? And Is it different vinifying in a cellar in Germany than in Burgundy?
2: Oh yeah, very much. Still at that time, so that means even 10 years ago, Germans would always try to learn from how it's done in Burgundy, and so be it pump over or be it even distemming or they would often follow the trend or even cold maceration. I still remember that in one of my neurology courses, I did a presentation on cold maceration after coming back from Burgundy. And so things were done more systematically. Whereas in Coteau, definitely, when it comes to Pinot, there were lots of creativity. People would do many different things, according to their own interpretation of the terroir, which was again greatly inspiring.
0: So, when did you and Guillaume decide that you wanted to be in business together? I know the first vintage was 2010.
2: Yeah, we became good friends, and then uh, in 2006. We were a couple. And even then, we were saying that we should definitely try to make wine together one of these days, meaning that it was very obvious it would be in Burgundy because Guillaume had no incentive (laughs) of coming to Germany, even though he loved, loved and still loves German Riesling especially. But he's a Burgundian through and through, and so it was very obvious it would be here.
0: How did you feel about that?
2: Well, I felt natural about it. I knew Guillaume, and because the course of my life was always nomadic, I didn't have much of a difficulty getting used to the idea of moving again. Even though when I finally moved to Burgundy, so that's 2011, I was already past my 40s. And so I thought, well, I don't want to move again for one thing. It's also not imaginable to move somewhere else with Guillaume. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you did the first vintage and you weren't living here at that time.
2: Right. I was making wine in Rango. Our harvest was always later. So I took two weeks, two weeks off. I came and did the vinif, vinification. Guillaume was working 100% full-time at bees, so he wasn't able to do the vinif. So I did the vinif. When I was leaving, the reds were almost done, so I left, and Guillaume could tend to our wines in the evenings. It was good.
0: I know you had been there for a harvest, but it seems to me like there would be a big learning curve making wine in a different region with different conditions, different grapes. Yeah. What were some of the immediate kind of realizations for you?
2: I think everything. (laughs) Everything. In 2011, we had rainy August, and so the biggest worry was that botrytis would spread, right? And I still remember it was maybe a week before harvest. It rained more than 30 millimeters a day, and I thought, oh, everything is over. So it rained a lot, but botrytis didn't spread like it would in Germany. So, I started to ask questions why. Of course, soil drainage. But not only that, you know, because in Germany, even the steepest slopes would start to have botrytis immediately. And I realized that it's because of the deeply planted vineyards, the competition between the vines. It's so hard that it would pump out the water faster. And of course, If it rains heavily, Botrytis would spread here, but not with the same speed. I was impressed by that.
0: We think of Botrytis as being such a part of those German wines. Yeah. Here, we think of it as something that you're trying to avoid.
2: Because I was already helping Paul Fierce make Pinot Noir, so in Pinot, for Paul, Botrytis is definitely a no-no thing. But at that time, and still today, Many German growers, Pinot growers, would harvest botrytis pinots and they would make rosé out of it, which is a technically absolutely a viable thing to do because you will press immediately. Even with botrytis, it's really no problem if you want to make blanc de noir. But there are many different kinds of botrytis, right? So if botrytis settles on the grapes when the grapes are not mature enough, ripe enough, then you would not have a uh, high-quality botrytis. And so even in recently making, you would wish that botrytis would start to settle when you have reached a certain maturity.
0: So I know in, in Germany, some people get really specific about the kind of botrytis that they have and sort the bunches. Yeah. And so when you come and work with Chardonnay and Pinot and Burgundy, I mean, what kind of sorting do you do and how is it different?
2: Oh, it's radically different. in Pinot. Well, that's also the same in Germany, but botrytis, every single botrytis berry would be, would go out, you know, would be sorted out. Whereas in Chardonnay, I think depending on the producer, uh, you would tolerate maybe 5% of botrytis. I personally wouldn't prefer botrytis. So before the botrytis spreads, we definitely start to harvest in Chardonnay, that's for sure. So in Burgundy, you see, you harvest in function of Botrytis spreading, which is basically the same, I think, everywhere you go, except that, you know, it's more binary, you know, zero or one. Botrytis or not Botrytis, and you will go, and you will get everything into your cellar. I'm really happy to work here. It's always a challenge and exciting thing every year. But one thing I miss from Germany is the Riesling harvest. Because it's logistically lots of fun and I could always get it more or less well. And it really tests the competence of the grower.
0: Here, I imagine one of the difficulties is just trying to work with a lot of different plots yes. in different areas. Right. What did you start to see as you started your small negociant?
2: Because we work with different growers the thing that I saw first was their approach to maturity. Each harvest we discuss with each grower to determine the date or more or less the timing of the harvest, except with one grower with whom we can't really negotiate. (laughs) Um, So that difference is still big very much depending on the philosophy.
0: How did you originally end up deciding where you wanted to source grapes from. Mostly you've worked with Cote de bon Appalachians. Yes. Mostly.
2: To be, to be honest, there wasn't much choice, because you see there's already, there are already many major negociants here, small and large, and sourcing grape for the negoce is one of the hardest thing, and it was also tests the competence of the negoce. And for us, therefore, the most important thing is to go out there and find an offer and then visit the vineyard. And if we like the way that's being farmed, then we will, we will buy the grapes.
0: So what are you looking for specifically?
2: Well, first of all, we prefer chemical herbicide not being used. Chemical fertilizer is a big no-no from my point of view. If you want to have a white wine with life, especially because, you know, it acidifies the soil, it's not only that it's bad for the environment, but it doesn't contribute to the, to the life of the white wine at all. It's better to plow, and the timing that you plow, how you plow, and uh, also how you work with weeds, which timing and what kind of compost you bring in. Those are very important. If it's organically grown, it's even better. Organically grown grapes, meaning the grapes are 10 to 15% more expensive than the market price, but that's okay. And then just sometimes just simply a feeling that you get going into the parcel, the color of the leaves, uh, how it's being trained. If there's life, if there's energy in the vineyard, then the vineyard is usually well done, right? Of course, technical details, but also the vibe that you get from the vineyard. So it's not necessarily aesthetics that all the rows are neatly trimmed and not necessarily. For example, if there are weeds in the rows. Also in Germany it's the same thing, but when there are weeds in the vineyard, people immediately say it is sale," that means it's dirty. It's not clean. So it's more of a clinical approach. Weeds are no-nos, and they have to be eliminated, and it has to be aesthetically beautiful, meaning that weedless vineyard. But that is not always very important for us. We source grapes, for example, from Volnay, Saint-Romain. It's from a same grower, and he's organically certified. And he doesn't plow his plots very, very often, even though the vineyards are beautiful, but he does have weeds in his vineyard. And that didn't bother us at all, because his grapes are small clusters, beautiful berries, a great energy in the vineyard, and I think that translates into wine. If you have a little bit of weeds that it still doesn't compromise the vigor of the vines, then I do think that the microorganisms and the yeast population in the vineyard is more complex, I assume. And I don't think organically grown or lieux or maybe the biggest question because even organic, you would spray, right? It's not chemically complex, the sulfur, but you're still spraying. That means you're still combating the, the fungus in the vineyard. So you can be farming conventionally. I still believe that you can also have a complex a microflora in the vineyard.
0: When it comes to an actual ferment, and how are the ferments different in Burgundy than in Germany?
2: One big difference is that the timing of the harvest is earlier here, meaning that your cellar would usually be warmer than in a German cellar. And in Germany, especially if you go to Mosel or even to Nahe, by the time you pick uh, your Rieslings, I mean, that's usually middle of October, end of October, beginning of November, I mean, the cellars become quite cold, and so that results in lingering fermentations. People sometimes don't realize because they're just used to working in the same cellar with the same temperature every year, but actually the cellar temperature is so decisive. And so when I came to bees in 2005, one of the first things that I paid attention in bee cellar was the temperature in the different corners of the cellar. And especially in white wine cellar, it was regularly 19 degrees, which would never be the case in German cellar. And that impressed me as well. I liked it a lot because I basically like, also in Riesling, but especially in Chardonnay or in Burgundy, a rather quick fermentation, meaning that it will be around three weeks and, if possible, not longer than four weeks to give a um, chiseled style of white wine i have always been fermenting with indigenous yeast in germany and also here and so i more or less have a feeling to how indigenous yeasts work but there's one big difference pectinomices they are much more prevalent here
0: oh yeah yeah
2: oh yeah oh yeah they are less in German vineyards to start with, I think. And of course, there are bretonomyces in German vineyards and also in German cellars. But here, if you don't pay attention, ah, they can spread really fast.
0: And so what are ways that you would deal with that? I know one of the things you do is kind of look at a wine as a bigger picture, as a balance, where brett might be a part of it, but you're looking for a balance of a whole.
2: Exactly, yeah. Because we work with, Reduced dose of sulfur, and we work with indigenous yeast. Uh, that is probably the quickest recipe to give Britannomysis their chance to propagate. So, the way we cope with it is that we help Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the wine yeast, which is working, to dominate as easily and as quickly as possible. That's in the end, that is the best cure. Because even if you would suffer a lot, your mast or your pinots, if you can't handle that aspect of uh, vinification, then you will have bretonomyces, whether you like it or not.
0: And that's why you like a quick ferment, It's for this reason.
2: That is in case of white wine. We prefer a quick ferment, yeah. In case of pinot, no, the ferment itself does not need to finish quickly. Actually, that's opposite. but. It's true that red wines, if you aim for a longer ferment, of course, you'll have higher chance to contend with bretonomyces. But in case of red wine, nonetheless, because we just really give a small dose of sulfur on the top of the fermentation tank, right, just the top layer, and because we don't do any pump-overs, so you actually don't spread that sulfur doses into the rest of the ferment, we do that just in order to protect the surface of the ferment of Pinot. Um, but at the same time, the fermentation itself should start as fast as possible. That's also important for a clean ferment.
0: So one of the things that a, a pump over would do then would be move the sulfur addition around.
2: Yeah. You will homogenize. Yeah. Many producers pump out from the bottom of the tank, and you will stick the tip of your hose into the mast so that you won't really infuse must with oxygen. But still you would do that usually in order to homogenize. We don't do that because we don't want to homogenize, but also, I personally don't like pumping during the fermentation or in any stage of winemaking.
0: And the reason that you don't like pumping is because it changes the texture of the wine later?
2: or I think pumping is a mechanical intervention, right? I find it just simply so brutal. Well, of course, pumping is a great innovation in winemaking. Because there was pumping, we could deal with larger volumes. Pumping really helped to scale the winemaking. So we shouldn't underestimate that part of it. And also women like me, small women like me could uh, do this job. So that's important, but, but this thinking of not liking pumping was already prevalent in Germany, especially Helmut Dunhoff didn't like it. I also worked at George Boyer with Hermann Schmoranz. He didn't like pumping either.
0: So instead of doing pump overs during a ferment what you do for red is you do pigeage so you punch down and yeah. you actually do it consciously more at the end of the ferment rather right. than at the beginning and why is that
2: One reason is because the more you touch the must the more you encourage the yeast activity that means the fermentation will go faster and because we want the skin contact time in the ferment to rather go slowly that means you know yeast by themselves will slowly grow in population that means the ferment will get warmer and warmer but slowly reach the peak and we would like that peak to be reached when the juice has a density of 0 i don't know how you call it in bricks so density of 0 and after that of course the alcohol content is higher and higher so the density will go below 0 So, if we wait with punch down or any kind of manipulating the must, then we can have that curve. And we think producing that slow curve in increase of yeast population and therefore the heightened yeast activity with a higher ferment temperature is important for the texture of the wine and also the nuance, and also finesse in the wine as well. And it also helps to not to kill the character of the terroir.
0: While you're doing a ferment, you're tasting a lot to see where it's at. Mm-hmm. And what you find is that when it's drier, when the ferment has rested further, it's easier for you to taste. Exactly. And so as... You wait to do the punch downs towards the end. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that helps you do is to really get a better sense in terms of fine tuning how many punch downs you need, right?
2: Exactly. That's one thing, for example, that Guillaume didn't know because the first time that we really waited until starting punching down was 2013, and by the way, 2013 was our last vintage to destem almost everything, and. Because it was a vintage that had difficulty in Pinot maturity, but the yield was low at the same time. And so we might say that the maturity was not so high like 15, but there was concentration in the vineyard. And that was one of the most beautiful fermentation that we had in ISO. Because I didn't touch the must at all, except Every morning, getting a couple of, maybe 20 or 30 liters from the bottom of the tank and sprinkling on the top of the tank. That's the only manipulation that we did or I did for uh, maybe like two weeks. And it made Guillaume worry because he would come to cellar from time to time and he would see that the juice that we would get out of the tank from below only had a rosé color after two weeks. And so he was like, would this be okay? Would this be okay? And as soon as we touched the mast, meaning like a very gentle touchdown with my two feet, but I wouldn't go deeper than knee deep, we immediately had color. And so he was pretty impressed by that. Because a beast, traditionally, they would punch down from the first day on, which is a tradition. And especially because they work with whole-cluster grapes, right? So we, we switched to whole-cluster grape in 2014 from almost zero to almost 100, but we didn't change that aspect of winemaking.
0: So that kind of goes back to the idea of infusion in the fermentation.
2: Yeah, so we could say that the first two-thirds of the ferment for us is infusion, and then the careful extraction comes in at the very end. Sometimes ferment goes very, very fast once you start the pigeage. And so I would taste three times a day. Because the first pigeage for me is like ankle deep. And even then, you would really stimulate the yeast. You will see it. The temperature goes up a couple of degrees Celsius. It's because you're crushing the grapes, meaning that you are extracting sugar from the whole cluster grapes, which Easts love, right? So they will immediately become bigger in population. They're stimulated. It will get warmer. So that's also one, one reason why we go very slowly, to go gently with extraction, but also not to feed yeast so fast.
0: And so what's the difference between what you're doing and, say, a cold soak? What would be the difference
2: there? For us, cold soak is not important if you cold soak, technically speaking, you're not having fermentation during that time. An extraction while in a completely juice state is very different. You don't extract tannins in cold soak. I think you can heighten a more um, fruit side of the wine if you do cold soak. Some growers don't necessarily agree with that, but I still don't think so. But that is not important for us. For us, the most important thing is to work well with Indigenous East. And so that's why we want them to start working from, if they want to, first day own. And they do. If we don't suffer much and if it's only the cap, and we don't homogenize the juice.
0: By doing it towards the end, you're doing less punch-downs than you used to.
2: That depends on the vintage, though. Because, you know, vintage like 15 or 16, extracted, I mean, you could extract by just having a prolonged period of skin contact or the ferment. I mean, the color came out immediately, the tannins were there, you know, there was concentration. I mean, 16 in that sense was also even easier to extract. And so it was harder to pinpoint the timing of stop the skin contact period and then press because we don't also want to overextract. Uh, Whereas vintage like 2017, we did need to intervene, otherwise you wouldn't extract much. But then again, it was okay for us with lighter color because the depth of the wine was there. And so I think 17 for us definitely have less color than 15 or especially 16. Uh, Depending on the appellation, we did do more pijache like New Saint George Premier Cru les mm, But that's the fun part of it. Our thinking itself hasn't radically changed, but of course, approach needs to get adjusted according to the vintage.
0: It's a, a point that we're going over so much because it's kind of a key point in looking at the Burgundy red wine landscape today in that some of the producers that we're thinking about who are doing more elegant red wines. Mm-hmm are moving towards more like these kind of moves. So doing less punch-downs and doing them towards the end of the ferment. Definitely. That's a difference from, say, the period when cold silks were really popular, like the Guyacard time. Mm -hmm. Because the difference is with this kind of infusion versus extraction, the wines are, I mean, at least to me and I think to you too, less fruity than the cold silk version. Yeah. So this is kind of what we see is moving into the landscape when we talk about elegant red burgundies that are maybe more approachable in youth in the mm-hmm. bottle that don't take 10 or 15 years to drink because you're not waiting for the tannins to come around.
2: Exactly. Yeah, I think so. Um, what has changed? Of course, the grapes have changed. The vineyard have been in transition. And also the growers' palate change as well. So that is definitely true. The taste of the wine lovers changed as well. But still, when I went to meet Thierry Brun of Lambray Domaine de Lambray, what he told me was very interesting. That was two years ago. I went to interview him for one Japanese wine magazine, and he was saying that you see, when he started in the '70s, at that time you would really need to be careful about the amount of va in your wine because at that time the pinots wouldn't have the density as a wine of what we have today and then you have even a slightly elevated va and that would immediately break the balance of the wine and so he was saying that we talk a lot about sulfur these days but we just we have to put things into context and he is right because What's always very difficult is that each variable we have should be discussed in a context. And to discuss them in relation to other variables, I think we even growers sometimes forget about that, but I think we have to remind ourselves uh, as much chance as we have we try to drink old burgundies so we stand on the shoulders of the giants so historical context is important and that's the fun part of working here
0: so how do you see that shift in technique in the historical context that situation with the fermenting and the pijage how do you see that in a bigger context
2: because of the climate change of course we have vintage differences but all we know I think we're making denser pinots, not heavier, but denser pinots than it used to. Uh, We have higher percentage of mature vintages in relation to less mature vintages. And so that's one reason why we can go more gentle with the extraction instead of using direct intervention like tijaj, or even a pump over, you would try to prolong the period of maceration. I mean, cold soak also has to do with that, more or less. That is a big difference. And also, the second difference is that the grower's children are born in a very lucky times, right? I mean, they can go to school, they're often very well-educated. They also go abroad, so they have broad point of view and experience when they come home and start working side by side with their parents. They also have developed their own palates. And so I think younger generation are making wines that they also appreciate and want to drink more so than the older generation.
0: One of the things that you did which you've already referred to, is that you made a move from completely de-stemming to basically 100% whole cluster for reds. Yes. And one of the things that helped you learn about whole cluster was making a Syrah in Burgundy. What led to that, and then what happened when you did that?
2: Well, first we came to that because as someone in Burgundy who owns a small plot in Bantu, so that was Syrah, That owner of the vineyard came to us and asked if we wanted to buy those grapes. And we thought, well, why not? So we decided to make a Syrah with minimal intervention and no sulfur, nothing added approach. And the first vintage was a flop. But the second vintage, we really got the hang of it. So rather than the Syrah Pinot difference, It's more of a gain of working with 100% whole cluster with indigenous yeast, no sulfur added, and having a clean ferment. That insight contributed greatly to how we approach Pinot today.
0: What would help along a clean ferment?
2: Clean ferment, meaning that we wouldn't have a high VA, that's important for us. We do like to drink. Lots of different wines, and we do drink lots of van nature, sometimes with high VA. If the wine has a balance and the charm, it doesn't bother us. But somehow, VA in our own wine, we can't really tolerate that. We don't like it. And so, the most important thing is that we make pied cuve. So, what is a pied cuve in English? Um,
0: it's when you have a small amount of wine that you start the fermentation with, exactly. and then you add that to the larger batch to get the larger batch going. Exactly, and yeah. sometimes you might use pressure or heat to get that pied couve going. Pied couve
2: going, yeah, exactly. That's what we do. I make pied couve because the syrup, it gets going quite fast. After two days, I have a pretty good pied couve with a very good ferment, and that's what we add to the tank.
0: Something you discovered when you were using more whole cluster is that if you add in sulfur then you can kind of lock in some green flavors with whole cluster. Exactly. You have to be really careful about that. Yeah.
2: It was a discovery helped by a friend. It was an advice from a friend, very talented vigneron called Nico Lafort. He has a small domain on his own in Mouillet. And Nico has large experience with whole cluster grapes, and he always ferments 100% whole cluster Drinking his wine, especially his 2013 New Saint-Georges, Herbu, was the turning point for me saying Guillaume that, okay, let's go whole cluster. I think he's really talented in taking advantage of the positive side of whole cluster and eliminating or almost completely eliminating the negative side. His wines, for me personally, have a whole cluster character in that it's floral. And almost never has green steminess in his wines. One advice he gave us was be careful with sulfur dose, because with sulfur you will extract the green tannins from the stems. So that's when I said, uh-huh, okay, we should try it. Our first vintage whole cluster was a 2014, which was in a way a fortunate vintage because We also didn't need to sort a lot. There wasn't much of a botrytis to sort out. Nonetheless, it was a vintage that went up relatively high in VA. So that was a challenge. And 2014, I only knew half of what I was doing, I think. (laughs) So it was a big challenge. And when I think back, it was rather uh, reckless, I think. But Guillaume always wanted to go high percentage whole cluster, so he was really excited about it. And he was right about it, I think. In 15, we nailed it, or we did understand how we should handle it. He was lucky to do whole cluster in 15 because I think the sanitation of the grapes was almost perfect, nearly perfect, even with 100 whole cluster pH wouldn't shoot up so high. It was really a great vintage in that sense, and we were lucky. 17 was more challenging because 17, the pH would shoot up rather easily, be it whole cluster or not. But we still think the magic of whole cluster is that it still brings all the elements together. And so It's like you wake up every day, you go to your cellar during the ferment. You don't know how it will taste that day. You don't know how the ferment will develop. You don't know how high pH will still get. It's like it really makes you nervous. But I think that thrill is something that once you have it, you can get away from it. Not only because we want that kind of wine, but also because of that that thrill during the ferment.
0: It seems to me like ferments are fun for you.
2: Exactly. It's a lot of fun. I think what we like and what I love about this job is that once all the grapes are in the cellar, then you have to deal with all the microorganisms, including bread and also Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And it's a constant conversation with them how it would go, and the East behaves differently every year. So you asked me before that how the ferment is different from Germany to Burgundy. I don't think ferment is that different. I really don't think so, but there is always a vintage difference. So depending on the vintage, right, the ferment can go very fast, rather slow, or uh, rather problematic. So that's why every vintage is different, because you can't see them, right? So you have to really be in tune and feel them. That's the thing that I like.
0: But I mean, am I wrong in thinking that in Burgundy, there's more native yeast ferments than there are in Germany? I mean, it seems to me... I think f- so. Right. Mm,
2: uh, definitely. But that's again, has to do with the cold cellar, that in Germany, it was always difficult to finish sugar because of the fermentation temperature. And so that's why people tend to grab cultured yeast. And I can understand that. And when the viticulture is well done, then you will have complexity in wine, be it indigenous yeast or not, For example, one of the grower that I respect a lot in Chablis, I shouldn't name his name, but but he is 100% uh, cultured yeast. But his wines have texture, his wines have depth, and especially the really complex nuance, but no problem. And so I think the farming quality is at most important, but I still do believe it's an advantage if you can ferment with indigenous yeast, especially because it demands you to observe well and in tune if you work with cultured yeast, and if you work with higher dose of sulfur, you can actually rest assured, more or less, right? And if you go for indigenous yeast, and if you go for lesser dose of sulfur, or sometimes no sulfur, then you've got to be alert every single second.
0: When does mallow happen for you for red? Does it happen after the alcoholic fermenter?
2: That, again, really depends on the vintage. Because usually we only minimally suffer the cap of the red wines. And so malo can start actually quite quickly.
0: Which do you prefer, the long one or the quick one?
2: We used to definitely prefer a long one or the one that comes late. And many producers would say that, that because the red wine would stay unsulfured long time on the lee. You can have more complexity, more of everything, actually, in the Pinot. And I still believe so, whereas what we discovered and what I personally discovered in 2017 was that despite early Mallow, it's definitely because we do 100% whole cluster, I believe, the wines were not compromised in a way that we used to know when we used to distem the Pinot. When we distempered the pinot, we definitely wanted the mallow to come late. And so, for that, whenever we pressed pinots off, we would usually leave the barrels outside or, you know, we let the cold air of the winter into the cellar. Today, with whole cluster fermentation, rather higher pH, and the minimal dose of sulfur, even if we would do that, we can't really put off the mallow. And even then, The wines don't lose energy, and they develop quite well. And so that's, again, the magic of whole cluster. When I say magic, it it sounds tacky, but I still find it magical because the development in the barrel goes into unforeseeable direction. It's really really fun.
0: The thing that you know that maybe some listeners don't know is that when you use whole cluster, because of the potassium in the stems, the pH changes in the actual must. Right. And so when that pH changes, which usually means it actually brings down the acidity. Exactly. It actually makes it easier to go through mallow. Right. And so then what's your approach to lees? In barrel, what do you do?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, in case of red wine, because we ferment whole clusters, so when we press, we actually can have very pretty leaves because you press the whole cluster. The stems work like a filter. So the juice comes out usually rather clean. And also the leaves are also pretty. It's a very fine textured leaves. And so those leaves usually we put it back into the burrow when we burrow down the Pinot. So that's the case with red, when it has to do with white wine, then we usually conserve the leaves almost till the end. That means until three weeks before the bottling, they are surely So be it in the barrel or after we take them out of the barrel, we take the white wines out of the barrel. So it's not exactly racking because it's more like an assemblage. You put all the barrels together with their leaves. We basically don't rack the whites until the bottling. We just leave it there, which is what most of the growers do. And then we don't do any batonnage, usually, unless it is called for, meaning when we periodically taste the white wines and then we sense that certain cuvées are oxidizing faster, we sometimes do batonnage. And so the summer after the harvest, we usually take the white wines out of their barrels and put them together in a stainless steel tank together with their lees, And that is the only time that we stir the lees. So, you know, before racking out, and we usually rack with gravity, I do the big batonnage so that the lees will be in suspension. And then they come into the stainless steel tank. That's the moment that we add sulfur. To the white wines for the first time. While they are in the barrels, even if Mallow would be finished, we wouldn't sulfur them. It's really at that assemblage that we add a first dose of sulfur to the white wines. And then the interesting thing is, it's not simply because the wines had been sulfured for the first time, but also because the leaves are in suspension and they come into a stainless steel tank that does not breathe, that blocks the oxygen completely from outside the wines go into a reductive phase and that reductive phase we think is very important for the later development of the wines after the bottling
0: and how do you think that that plays out how does reduction in the winery affect later the wine in the bottle
2: i think the wine basically stays fresh for a longer time the longer we let the white wines surely, the more that force of reduction stays in the wine and stabilizes the wine, actually. I think leaves are a stabilizing factor. That's important. That means, of course, we sulfur them. We don't believe that the white wines are good completely without sulfur. But we also want to have the help of the leaves to give them life, to have interesting development. And many known names in the natural wine world who um, make white wines with small amount or hardly any sulfur, those wines require a longer elevage period. I think for white wines, that is required when you want to work with less sulfur
0: you're feeling that the reduction is coming from the fact that you're not racking and from the fact that it's a long time on Mm lees, not that it's a sulfur in the vineyard or...
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Because there's apparently different kinds of reduction. True. And so the kind that you're looking for is basically lees-based.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's not that immediate flintiness of reduction that we want. Not necessarily. We like it, though. Especially when the white wines are in in barrels, we want that flinty character in the wine. And also, if they are there after the bottling, it doesn't bother us, but still that shouldn't dominate because that reductive part is part of the energy of the wine, but we personally don't want it to be the major component of their aromatics. So. It's difficult to strike a good balance, and I think for some growers, that flintiness is really, really important. And they farm very well, so despite all his or her whites are flinty, but you definitely have the clear delineation of each terroir. But we personally, it's, it's wanted, that flintiness, but not too much.
0: How do you see the topic of reduction here with white wine in Burgundy versus in Germany?
2: Ah, maybe in the end, it's not very fair to compare and it's also almost impossible to compare. It's different from grape varieties, it's different from the climate. I think climate plays a big, big role. Uh, also, sulfur doses, of course. So when all these Variables are different. It's very difficult to compare. Because even someone who would work with very low sulfur dose in dry Rieslings, they would still be always higher than here. In dry German Rieslings of today, you usually don't want mallow to happen, and there's always some residual sugar, right? And so that means that you are required to work with higher dose of sulfur because otherwise you will have second fermentation in the bottle. So it's unavoidable to work with sulfur. I think some growers like Peter Kuhn today, if mallow happens in their rieslings, it doesn't bother them. But that's someone who's been working that way already since many, many years. And so they can deal with mallow happening in Their dry Rieslings that does not affect the aromatic strength of the Riesling. But with those growers who definitely don't want to have the aromatic change in the Riesling that comes from mallow, then their wines definitely do change in a negative direction, I find, because it's not wanted from the producer. I think that's also important, you know, the intent of the grower. So that is a big, big technical difference, right, because in dry German reasonings, no mallow and residual sugar, you have to bottle, number one, with higher dose of sulfur, and then sterile filtration, which we don't do here in Burgundy. We don't need it. The white wines are already biologically stable when the mallow is done and when there's no more sugar. So if you want to avoid filtration completely, you can. I mean... Here in Burgundy, you filter, if you do, only for the aesthetic reason, right? That you want that brilliance in in Chardonnay. But then if you want, like, cloudiness, that's also okay. And I find that a big advantage because with all due respect to Riesling, I personally, if I could avoid filtration, I definitely would avoid filtration. But then again, that means if you drink great German Rieslings of today, it's amazing that they can make such wonderful wines despite filtration. So you imagine how robust and strong the wines are to stand against sterile filtration.
0: What do you think about mallow with Riesling?
2: If it is wanted from the grower, then I don't think it's negative to the wine at all. It's just simply this light motif from the 80s and the 90s after the style of filtration was discovered and was implemented that you could make Riesling finally in a very modern style, that means without malo. You need a high technical and onological understanding to make that kind of Riesling. It's not tradition, right? So I'm sure you You know, the whistlings of Gernot Kohlmann from Imich Patarieberg, many of his wines do go through malo. It's definitely part of the character of the wine. And so I think once wanted, the malo can be interesting in wine. But if you want that extremely fruit-forward, clean, linear whistling style, then maybe you don't want to have malo. And that's one choice. I definitely respect that. But today, I'm sure I'm also a product of the environment. So longer I live outside Germany, the more I'm attracted to the kind of wines. For example, like Gannot Mix, even though I still love Donhoff, and Fused, definitely.
0: I think you're a little unusual in that you have been in some different worlds and some different contexts for wine that are not so similar. hmm when it comes to moving contexts like that, moving Appalachians and moving really old world cultures, how has that felt for you?
2: Well, it was mostly exciting, exactly because, you know, they're so different. But then at the same time, when I was working for Paul Fust, Paul was very energetic and curious wine grower. So he had 13 different varietals when I was working for him and he still does make Pinot Blanc, and Pinot Blanc made in Burgundian style. So it was fermented in pièces, in small barrels, sioux with occasional batonnage. And that approach, I mean, Paul was always absolutely up-to-date when it comes to what's going on in Burgundy. Quite up-to-date, amazingly. The way he was making his Pinot Blanc at that time, it's already 18 years ago, was also like more or less the Burgundy of today. So I was accustomed to that. But nonetheless, it's true that the context is different. Grapes are different, especially harvest. And the way harvest proceeds is extremely different. Especially when it's Riesling, once you start harvesting them, you can actually pick them anytime, right? I mean, you can pick them while they're dry, or you can pick them when they start to have botrytis. Or... So it's enriching. and. Fun.
0: What about logistically in terms of trying to get a, a harvest done or trying to get a grape contracts? What's the situation in Burgundy compared uh, to Germany?
2: Well, well doing negos in Burgundy is, I think, it used to be and today even more. Logistically, it's a big, big challenge because already if you want to source high quality grapes, then you have to have lived here. Of course, you can work with brokers who are still today very important and do very important work. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, it's a trust relationship between you and the grower, because we need to always discuss and adjust so many different things. And so that's one thing which is challenging. If you have good understanding with the grower, it's wonderful if you don't understand very well what the grow, which doesn't happen with us anymore because we're more or less friends with all the growers we have. So it's a very good relationship. But sometimes it can be a logistical nightmare because we want something to be harvested on a certain day and then it can rain and the growers also need to wait. They have to compress their timing of harvest. Yeah, so I used to work alone in the cellar and then it would be that Guillaume would come and help me at the end of the day, when he finishes the cellar work at Bees. But the thing is, Guillaume is full-time employed at Bees and he has a big responsibility, especially in white wine making at Bees, And so he hardly has time to come and even check once the vintage starts. And especially year like 2017, when the yield is high, he hardly has any time to come, and so we should discuss already more or less how we would approach. But then, nonetheless, after that day-to-day operation is in my hands, and it used to. Be, of course, we would have difference in opinions sometimes, but it used to be more. Uh, we would fight sometimes, but that's over now. That's over since four or five years now because we trust each other. And when I'm not sure. I will take the sample home, and I ask his opinion, right? And uh, we taste together at different friends, different growers. We taste different kinds of wines together. We have more or less same source of inspiration. So it's now much more natural, and it's dynamic in a very good way. And we think we can make wines, of course, individually. No problem with that. But I think the fact that we work together, that's what makes your wine our wine.
0: What do you think the big realizations for you have been in terms of technique? We've covered a number of them, but like what right. are things that have really stood out for you on the learning curve?
2: I think the mentality. That's my interpretation, so it could be completely wrong, but. I think Germans are, first of all, a people, they are hard on themselves and maybe it comes from the fact that they lost the war, their legacy with Nazi. Um, I'm sure they had always been anal in everything that they do, but they have a certain light motif of how wine should be, I think more so than here. So how wine should be, how Riesling should be, how the grapes should look like, how the vineyard should look like. And coming here, not only to Burgundy, but to France, I feel more or less more liberated. That German rigor has taught me so many things and I actually don't regret it. I'm glad it's happened this way than the other way around that I was first in Germany for a long time, worked there 15 years before coming here. I think, especially when it comes to winemaking in a cellar, Burgundians are more relaxed and also creative when it comes to red wine, vinification. But then again, when it comes to grape growing, I like the degree of engagement that German growers in general have in the vineyard. I mean, here in Burgundy, of course, we also have many, many great growers with individual creative approach, and I'm absolutely inspired by that. But sometimes, maybe because these vineyards have been cultivated and tested and, and developed for so many numbers of years, Um, you can do okay work in the vineyard and still make pretty wines. It happens. I mean, that is not the case in Germany, especially because after the war and the tractor was developed, and so the vineyards were rearranged according to the mechanical needs and efficiency that comes from working with the tractors. Because of that, the viticulture, the base of viticulture has greatly changed. You have to be an excellent farmer to make excellent wine. That's for sure. And so that importance in farming is even more keenly realized in Germany, I think. And that is also one aspect that I cherish very much.
0: Tomoko Kiriyama found a sense of liberation making wine in Burgundy. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levi. Tomoko Kuriyama is a partner in Chanterev with her husband, Guillaume Bot in Burgundy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Ra Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs... Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening. This episode came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family who have helped countless writers and journalists learn more about Burgundy over the years. What about that thing about water and then tannins? Because that's something you studied early on. Right. Have you seen that play out? Because you've worked with really different soil types. True. And in idioms where tannins are more or less desired. In terms of that being an early study and then your life experience looking back, what do you, do you see?
2: First of all, we differentiate between white wine grapes and red wine grapes. With red wine grapes, you would like to aim for a higher water stress in the vineyard to have more tannic component and also elegance in the wine. Whereas white wines, you would like your vines to be more vigorous, definitely, than the red wine. More uh, intensity of photosynthesis, that means you know, the leaves being more green. So that's already a difference between white wine grapes and red wine grapes. After that, when it comes to reds, pinot noirs, here in Bordeaux, it is difficult because I, number one, I don't have the tool to measure the water stress in each parcel. But then again, also the terroir here is so complex, especially because there are faults in the soil. And I think that plays out a big role, also how thin or how thick the topsoil is, and so on. So that's that's very difficult. Of course the larger the topsoil, the wine can be, definitely more fruitful. That's something, for example, that we realize when we make Volnet Village, because we used to make Volnet Village as an assemblage of two different vineyards. One is Le Lure. And the same grower also has Poiseau, and Poiseau has a thicker topsoil. Definitely has a more food-driven, cheerful character. It's a more robust wine, whereas Luret, with a thinner topsoil, and it's on the slope, so has more water stress, makes pristine wines with finesse and minerality. So that's a good example. But then after that, if you want to compare New Saint-Georges, Premier Cru, Les Damodes, and for example, a Volnay or Poma, it's nearly impossible because it's not the limestone from the same age. And I think that especially plays out a key role in aromatics and how the tannins behave in Pinot. So not only water stress, I'm convinced of that after coming here.